You are listening to the Luther Sermon Podcast, and this is Martin Luther's Sermon on the Text, Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34, a portion of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus teaches us not to worry. This was preached on the 15th Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more information about the Luther Sermon Podcast and to listen to more Luther sermons, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org. This sermon is from Luther's House Postal. I'm reading from a translation published by J.A. Schulze, publisher of Columbus, Ohio, in 1884, a text and translation that's in the public domain. First, the Gospel reading, Matthew chapter 6, verses 24 to 34. Jesus says, No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. Ye cannot serve God and mammon. Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life what ye shall eat, or what ye shall drink, nor yet for your body what ye shall put on. Is not the life more than meat, and the body than raiment? Behold the fowls of the air, for they sow not, neither do they reap, nor gather into barns. Yet your heavenly Father feedeth them. Are ye not much better than they? Which of you, by taking thought, can add one cubit into his stature? And why take ye thought for the raiment? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They toil not, neither do they spin. And yet I say unto you, that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Wherefore, if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is, and tomorrow is cast into the oven, shall he not much more clothe you, O ye of little faith? Therefore take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? For after all these things do the Gentiles seek. For your heavenly Father knowest that ye have need of all these things. But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. So far the text. Luther's Sermon This is a rich gospel and a long sermon directed against avarice, which is hateful in the sight of God and one of the greatest obstacles to the spread of the gospel. And yet we see that the whole world is drowned in it, for everyone troubles himself with cares a day and night about securing a living. None is satisfied with what God provides and bestows. They all crave for more and loftier things. Whoever has succeeded by the help of God to possess a house desires to have a castle. And if he has a castle, he would like to own a whole town. He is never satisfied, but ever looking for more. Everyone desires to increase his possessions and to rise higher. If it were not for pride and avarice, we would all have enough and not be annoyed by such anxiety, scratching and scraping as we find everywhere. Such unchristian conduct the Savior would oppose in this sermon, and is therefore very severe. No man, he saith, can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. From this it is obvious that the Lord considers mammon to be in opposition to his service. Hence our text is not calculated for young people. Children, thank God, would rather eat cherries than count money. They prefer a beautiful apple to a piece of gold, and do not inquire about the price of grain because they are sure that they will find enough to eat. This text is designed rather for the heads of families, for those in office, and especially for the preachers of the gospel, who have to contend with great difficulties and some of whom are compelled to struggle hard for the support of wife and children. 
These the Lord here comforts and would deliver them from such cares, telling them to look at the fowls of the air. If God so richly provides for these, he will certainly also provide for them and keep them from starving. Hence, this sermon is not especially intended for the youth, for these think that kitchen and granary are filled and leave the care to others. But we old fools have the misery of being addicted to cares for the body and being haunted by fears of starvation. But because our Lord Jesus is so very decisive in declaring it impossible to serve both God and mammon, it will be necessary to learn what is meant by the service of God. To serve, in general, means to do what has been commanded. To say, I serve my Lord, is the same as to say, I do what my Lord has commanded me. A service has reference to a word and command, and not so much to the person. A master or mistress does not need to command the servants to eat and to drink. This they will do of themselves. But they must see to it that they do what they have been commanded. If, however, a servant is wicked and slothful and does not perform what his master has commanded him, but rather what others tell him to do, he may be said to serve two masters. In the same way, we must speak of the service of God. To serve God means, simply, to hear what he saith, and to do it cheerfully and readily. And what does God say or command? First of all, he commands us to hear the Lord Jesus and to accept the gospel. This is the only true and acceptable service which we can render unto God, because his command to do it is plain and clear. Then he commands children to honor their fathers and mothers, and parents to educate, teach, and support their children, that the wife love her husband and attend to her household duties, and that the husband support and protect his wife, etc. Children serve God when they honor father and mother, for this is the command of God. So also when servants of a household faithfully do what they have been commanded, they are not merely serving their master, but God in heaven also who has commanded them to be faithful to their earthly master. Thus we might go on through all stations and callings in life. Everyone could enter into the service of God if he would only learn what is meant by serving God. For it does not consist in work, but in the word and command of God. The world considers it something great if a monk denies himself every temporal enjoyment, enters a cloister, and leads a life of privation by fasting, watching, praying, and the like. In this case, there is no lack of work, but a lack of divine command. God has not commanded him to do so, and therefore it cannot be pointed to a, as a service of God. On the other hand, it appears to be an insignificant thing for a maidservant to cook, wash dishes, sweep the house, and the like. And yet, because God has commanded her to do so, her work is truly a service of God and excels by far all so-called holiness and hard life of monks and nuns. These have no command for their work, whilst here we have a command to honor father and mother and to assist in domestic affairs. Hence it is indeed a service to God, of God to do what he has commanded and to leave undone what he has forbidden. And everywhere God may be served, not merely in the church, but also at home, in kitchen and cellar, in the workshop, and in the field, by people in cities and in the country, if we would all only heed and understand. For God has not merely ordained the government in church and state, but also in family. This also he wants us to support. And when this is attended to by parents and children, servants and neighbors, they all serve God because he has so commanded them. A maidservant might be of cheerful heart and say, I cook, make the beds, sweep the house. Who's told me to do so? My master and mistress, it is true. But who has given them power over me? God himself. Then certainly it must be true that I am serving not merely my earthly master, but also my heavenly master, and that God must be pleased with my work. What more blessed occupation could I wish? 
It is the same as if I were cooking for God in heaven. If we thus looked upon our service and calling, we would have reason always to be cheerful and happy, notwithstanding our cares and troubles, which would never become too hard to be borne. This, however, the devil is busily engaged to prevent. He cannot see us cheerful in doing what God has commanded, but causes us to do it with great reluctance and not out of love to God and our fellow man. If a station in which one would be sure of serving God could be bought for money, all would be ready to pay for it, everything they had. Just look at the foolish monks and nuns. They have done very much hoping to serve God thereby. And yet, as I have said, the main thing was wanting in all their doing. For if you ask them why they entered the cloister, they cannot say that God has commanded them to do so. If they will tell the truth, they must confess that it was their opinion that by doing they would serve the Lord. Therefore only the devil will thank them for the course which they pursue. It would be just as wrong as if for my servant to sweep the house when I had commanded him to build a fire. Such a proceeding would certainly displease me, and I would not thank him for it, especially if that servant would even defend his course and say, The sweeping of the house is harder work. The devil, I might answer, may reward you for it. He has commanded you to do it. You should have warmed the room for me, as I have told you, and not swept it. The same is the case with monks and nuns who glory in their work as a service to God whilst God has never told them to perform it. Therefore, if you want to serve God rightly, remain in your calling and station, be that ever so humble. And first of all, listen to the word of God in the church and also to the civil authorities, masters and parents, and be obedient. This is also very properly called a service of God. Hence, everyone should notice and learn for himself in whatever calling he may be what may rightly be called a service of God. Namely, all things commanded by God through pastors, parents, and masters. If you do this, you may be sure of God's appropriation, and your service will be no burden to you. God will be pleased because he is served, and whatever you thus do in your own house is as acceptable as if you had done it to God in heaven. This is also the best adornment in the character of man by which he is exalted above all other creatures, no matter how obedient they may be toward their maker. For here we see that the sun, the moon, the earth, and all creatures, in obedience to God's order, accomplish the object which God ordained for them. The sun gives light by day to all the world, and the moon by night, and the earth produces fruit annually. And what is the object of water? What is it commanded to do? It is to produce fishes, as God commanded in the book of Genesis. And this it does, whenever sinful men do not hinder God's blessing or the execution of his commands. So all other creatures go forth to serve God in their most beautiful array. Christ says that even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of the flowers or lilies of the field. What is a flower good for? What is its command? Nothing else than to be looked upon, to please the eye, and to disperse a sweet odor. If God then puts such an high estimate on flowers, how much greater do you not suppose is the glory of man who is found obedient to his command? A maiden dressing or adorning herself for a dance is doing a worldly work, If we judge it properly, we must say, it is dung compared with the work she is doing in her calling when she takes care of the children entrusting to her or when she does the work of the kitchen as she has been commanded. Christians are praised in the 45th Psalm when it says, King's daughters were among the honorable women. But what kind of an ornament or beauty is that here spoken of, seeing that Christians here on earth are poor and despised? It is a spiritual beauty, no pearls, gold, silver, or satin, but obedience to the command of God. Such beauty excels the beauty of the Son, because it is the beauty of God. He, therefore, who lives in obedience to the command of God is clothed in God's own beauty.
If a man were dressed in the attire of a king, or a woman in that of the Queen of France, it would be a great thing, and every one would admire it. Yet it would be nothing compared with the beauty of a woman showing obedience toward God by loving and honoring her husband and by giving a proper training to her children. Over against such a beauty, all costly apparel, silk and satin and jewelry, is like the torn and patched apparel of a beggar. It is a beauty after the word and command of God. This is a real crown and a beautiful golden chain, as Solomon says, Proverbs 1.8, My son, hear the instructions of thy father, and forsake not the law of thy mother, for they shall be an ornament of grace unto thy head, and chains about thy neck. Here on earth such obedience is not appreciated, but in the life to come it will be different. Then God himself will acknowledge it and say, Come here, my child, thou hast been an obedient child, a faithful maiden, and a pious servant. Then it will be seen that obedience toward God and his word, even in a humble calling, is more beautiful than all the glitter of the whole world. May this suffice concerning the first point in which we have learned to know what is meant to serve God. May we practice it and not be hindered in it by the service of mammon. Now let us also look at the comfort and learn to guard against avarice. In the first place, the Lord tells us, No one can serve two masters. He also names two masters, the one called God, who is the true master and whom we ought to serve. The other is called Mammon, who is not the true master, for which reason Christ forbids us to serve him. And how we are to serve God we have learned. What it means to serve Mammon, the Savior tells us, is uh, it is taking thought for our life, what we shall eat or drink or put on. The whole tenor of our text is directed against sinful cares and requires us to avoid them altogether because they are not merely useless and vain, but also opposed to the true worship and service of God. We should therefore guard against them and accustom ourselves to the service of God and trust in Him, being assured that He knows our wants and will cheerfully supply them if we only confide in Him. And we are encouraged to trust in God when we remember that without our care He has given us life and existence. We may here call upon the whole world as witness. Would you not prefer your life and existence to the food of the whole world? Your life is more than meat and your body more than all raiment. Are we not very unthankful people? He has given us already the greatest and best gifts, and should we not trust him for the less? If a rich man had given you a thousand pieces of gold, would you not trust in him for a pair of old shoes? Of such mistrust in the Lord of heaven we make ourselves guilty. He has given us great and most valuable gifts, and still we mistrust him for the less valuable, for meat and drink. Let us think of it, how such mistrust must displease him. In like manner, as we can learn from our life and existence, from our eyes, ears, hands, feet, and every member of the body, that God is kind in bestowing them upon us, he also points us to other creatures in order that we may, by their example, learn to abstain from cares and trust in him. Thus the birds passing before our eyes, put us to shame, so that we might bow before them and say, My dear teacher, I must confess that I am not as skillful as you are. The little birds rest in its nest all night without being disturbed by unnecessary cares. In the morning it arises bright and happy, taking its seat in a little tree and sings and praises God. Then it looks around for food and finds it. Shame on us old fools for not having learned to do as we are everywhere taught." A bird is not given to cares, and thus deports itself like a perfect saint. It has neither fields, nor barns, nor granaries, yet it sings and praises God as joyous and happy, because it knows one who provides, the kind Father in heaven. 
Why do not we do the same, especially as we have the advantage that we can labor? We can farm land, gather the fruits of the field, and lay up for the time of need, and yet we cannot rid ourselves of carking cares. Therefore, we should never forget the lesson concerning the fowls of the air. They are without care, cheerful, and happy. And why should they care? They have an excellent master of kitchen and cellar whose name is Father in Heaven, and who has an eating house as wide as the world. They may therefore fly whithersoever they please. They find a well-prepared table. The same Heavenly Father, Christ says, wants to be your master of kitchen and cellar also, if you only would believe it and have him. But alas, we find the whole world to be a crowd of desperate misers who do not trust in God nor serve him, but who serve mammon and who care nothing but for riches. If they succeed in their efforts, they are of good cheer. If not, they are sorry and grieved and trouble themselves day and night. And again, if the house were filled with gold, yea, if the house itself were built of solid gold, or the waters of the Elbe and Rhine were one mass of gold, what good would it do you? If you had no grain, no beer, no wine, no water, you certainly could not live on gold. Such is indeed a miserable service of mammon, which even the heathen despised and mocked by inventing the fable that a rich king in in Phrygia called Midas was so avaricious that he wished everything he touched would turn to gold. His wish was granted. As soon as he touched his coat, table, seats, beds, doors, all turned into gold at once, even the knife to eat with, and meat and drink. Therefore the miser had to starve to death, because his unfortunate wish had been fulfilled. Therefore abhor all covetousness. You cannot live on gold or silver. And yet people are so blind and mad as to not be satisfied with meat and drink, but also to crave for gold and silver besides, as though they needed not what God bestows, but what he withholds. Let this be considered by every Christian, and let not covetousness get control over him, but let him trust in God, who has given us and all creatures many evidences of his paternal care, that he will provide for us and not expose us to want which we cannot bear. This also is acknowledged by the psalmist when he refers to the young ravens which God supplies with food. For this is the order of God always, that whenever he gives life, he also provides means for the substance of that life. And if he does this in reference to animal life even, how much rather will he not do it as a regards to the life of men, and especially of his Christians, to whom he has not only given life and existence, but even his only begotten Son, so that they might not live only in time, but in all eternity? This is what the Lord Jesus desires. He would have us delivered from unbelief, which is the cause of all covetousness. For what is accomplished, if we even trouble ourselves to death, it would be a foolish thing for a small man to sit down in a corner all the days of his life and worry himself about growing to the size of a large man. Would not all the world ridicule him and consider him a fool? Thus also the Savior says, The world acts by craving after money and goods. No one will get rich by it, no matter how much he cares. It all depends on the blessing of God and not on our caring. If we are favored by the blessing of God, we have all that we need. If not, we shall not enjoy nor retain what we have, as we see from many examples. This is also a reason which should move and induce us to believe that our cares are in opposition to faith and to God, and besides only torment us and do us no good. This we may call a true exhibition of covetousness, care, and unbelief, which three are separably, inseparably connected. If we would but use our reason, we would hate these vices and guard against them. 
The Lord, however, does not stop here. He also wants us to open our eyes when we are in the field or in the garden and to look at the flowers. We will find them to be excellent teachers inculcating the highest of all sciences to trust in God and confide in Him for all good. There are flowers of all kinds of colors most beautifully arrayed that even an emperor or a king is not arrayed like one of them. Their splendor is but a dead thing, but the colors and beauties of a flower are natural and full of life. Nor does it grow as by mere chance. Here the Savior tells us in plain language, God so clothes the grass of the field. As also he said before, birds do not find their food by chance, but God the Father in heaven provides it, and so orders it that everyone gets its share. This is the case also with the flowers, as all may see. It is God's special order in creation, else we would not find them to be alike in color, leaves, numbers of leaves, veins, petals, etc., And as God has paid so much attention to grass, which was made only for the purpose of being seen and of serving as food for animals, it is not a sin and a shame for us to doubt the promise of God to provide raiment for us. We have an advantage over the fowls of the air. We till the ground, we harvest, we fill our barns and cellars and gather a supply, at least for one day, which none of the fowls can do, and yet they are fed. So also the Lord says we have an advantage as it it regards raiment. We raise so much flax, hemp, and sheep. In every family we observe much spinning and weaving. How can it be possible that man should be destitute of faith and that he should have no hope to receive a portion for himself, especially if he is faithful in his labor? Here we must make a distinction. Labor is not forbidden, but urgently commanded. We are not to be indolent and careless, but diligent always. Cares concerning meat, drink, clothes, and other necessities of life, however, are positively forbidden. Such cares would show that we had no confidence in God to provide for us. Thus God would be shamefully reviled. Both must be together. In the first place, we should labor faithfully. This God commanded our first parents in paradise. They should labor if they would eat. In the second place, we should be Christians and believe. And to believe means to trust that God is our Father, who knows what we need and who will cheerfully and kindly supply our wants. By, this, by the side of such faith, anxious cares or the thoughts of our life cannot exist, or else faith is shaken and overcome. Hence the Lord forbids them. In few words he saith, Take no thought. You have been commanded to labor, that is your duty. But to care is my part and office, because I am your father and can accomplish something by caring while you cannot. Do according to my direction, therefore, But if you are disobedient, you are not my servants, but the servants of mammon. Him you love, but me you hate. To him you cleave, but me you despise. Many public examples bear undoubted testimony to this. Many a one who, at this moment, knew of a chance to make a gain, or ten or twenty guilders, would eagerly embrace the opportunity and not think of going to church and of listening to the preaching of God's word. To gain money he thinks of more importance To listen to the preaching of God's word, he argues, can be put off to a more convenient season. But it is nevertheless true that our conduct toward the word is our conduct toward God. Whoever despises the word and prefers money despises and hates God. No one can explain away this truth. The text is too clear and emits no evasion. Hence it is a Christian doctrine that we should take no thought, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or wherewithal shall we be clothed? After these things, the Savior saith, The Gentiles seek, who do not know nor believe that they have a Father in heaven. But you have a Father in heaven, who has given you life and existence, yea, also his own Son. He knows what you need, 
How can you therefore take him to be so unmerciful and severe as not to provide for you, but to permit you to starve and to perish? Do as you see your children do. They retire in the evening and sleep without any care. They do not trouble themselves with the questions where they shall get a piece of bread or a dish of soup tomorrow. They know that their parents care for that. Do the same, beloved children. Christ here says, toward your heavenly Father, and you shall not suffer want. But do not give way to anxious thought or care, for by so doing you would show a distrust in God. Rather, leave all care to Him and expect everything good from Him. The Savior concludes our text by saying, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. This is a most necessary doctrine and a most precious promise. The children of the world seek first the kingdom of the world. They strive for earthly things which pass away. God's is a different kingdom. It is an eternal kingdom. This Christians should seek. This kingdom, Christ says, is within us. It is nothing else than to hear the word and to believe, that is, to trust in God with all our heart and to know him to be our Father. Wherever there is faith, there God dwelleth and produces righteousness and forgiveness of sins. Let this, the Savior says, be your first concern. Cleave to the word, hear it diligently, practice and believe in it. After having sought the kingdom of God and his righteousness first, be content and do what each one in his calling may have been commanded. For Christians are not allowed to go idle, but are commanded to labor. Then all these things shall be added unto them. If God can afford to be kind even to wicked people and to give them all they need, notwithstanding that they persecute and mock his word and heap upon him all possible shame and dishonor, how could it be possible for him to forsake you who love him, cheerfully hear and spread his word, and put all your trust in him? Thus the Lord teaches us to abide by the word, to believe, to be godly, and not to give way to cares, assuring us that God will not withhold from us any needful thing. But what takes place? Most of men take their own course, despise the word of God, and rather than go to church and hear the preaching of the gospel, they go to places of drinking, carousing, and dancing. From this a scandalous life must follow, and it is impossible that prosperity should be the result, or that God should not punish such wickedness with disease, poverty, and all manner of evil. But there is another evil connected with such a course. Most of these people neglect their labor and become indolent and careless. Or, even if they labor and labor hard, they know no bounds in carousing, gambling, and other carnal enjoyments, spending the earnings of a whole week in one day. This God has forbidden. He does not want us to go idle, nor to squander, but to save our earnings. Therefore the Lord says, The fowls of the air sow not, neither do they reap nor gather into barns, as though he would tell us, You are doing both and should do both. You should both labor and save the proceeds of your labor for the time of need. But whoever will not do according to this command must not put the blame of his disappointments upon God. You cannot blame God for the consequence of your reckless and unchristian life and of your idleness and squandering. God is ever ready to give. If only you would be a good Christian, hear and believe his word, cast all cares upon him, and labor faithfully. As is here said, All these things shall be added unto you, but you are unwilling to listen. When it is time to go to church, you lounge in bed, take a walk or go carousing, and do the same when you are asked to work. A fowl even must labor by going to its food. God who has promised to feed it will not throw food into its nest. Then mark this. Fear God, be faithful in thy labor, and leave all care unto him. 
he knows how to provide for thee. Yet, as we have stated, be not covetous, but contented. Covetousness also is an abomination in the sight of God. This is the doctrine of our gospel lesson. May God grant us his Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ, that we may improve by it and become more pious. Amen. This has been Martin Luther's sermon on the text, Matthew 6, verses 24 to 34, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount about worry, preached on the 15th Sunday after the Feast of the Holy Trinity. I'm Pastor Brian Wolfmuller of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. For more Luther sermons and to learn more about the Luther Sermon Podcast, please visit our website at www.hope-aurora.org.